Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Treating Agitation in Alzheimer's Dementia is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Otsuka American Pharmaceutical Incorporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this webcast entitled Treating Agitation in Alzheimer's Dementia. My name is Chuck Vega. I'm a health sciences clinical professor of family medicine at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. George Grossberg. Uh, Dr. Grossberg, would you mind introducing yourself? (laughs) I'm happy to. So I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, card-carrying, and I'm director of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry at St. Louis University School of Medicine. Well, so, and today we're going to be talking about how we can come together as a care team and provide the best care for a challenging issue in clinical care, which is agitation in uh, Alzheimer's associated dementia. So, we're going to be looking at treatment strategies with this particular discussion, and we'll be talking about some emerging pharmacotherapies um, that show, are showing promise for this, uh, for this condition. So, before we get started, uh, let's go ahead and review our objectives for the CME activity. So at the conclusion, uh, you should be able to identify the role of non-pharmacologic strategies and when pharmacologic therapy is necessary for the treatment of agitation and dementia. You should also be able to evaluate evidence of current and emerging pharmacologic agents for the management of agitation in patients with uh, Alzheimer's dementia and demonstrate appropriate prescribing and monitoring of antipsychotics for the treatment of agitation associated with Alzheimer's dementia. So uh, let's get started. I really like the fact during your presentations that you talked about how challenging these visits are because... Um, I think it can be not only time-consuming, but it's also emotionally draining for, uh, for, you know, for patients and their care supporters who are engaged in the visit as well. Um, do you have any pearls as to how to you know, express empathy and do the right thing, but also do, do so efficiently so you can move on to that next case? Because you know the patient's waiting there. Yeah, no, I, I think those are important points. I'm not sure that I have pearls, but I can just share with you things that we recommend. And I, I think you, you use the word empathy, and hopefully all of us as uh, clinicians on the front lines with these patients and their care partners do show empathy and recognize how difficult it is for the care partner to, to deal with these behaviors. As far as the practicalities of the busy practice setting, Uh, One of the things that we found to be very useful is, number one, to make sure that whenever we're seeing an Alzheimer's patient, let's say, who comes with the care partner, that very early in the visit, we're asking about behaviors. Right. Because sometimes, sometimes the care partners are reluctant to mention that, you know, the patient is maybe at times screaming or they're agitated or they have a short fuse and they can explode at times. They feel embarrassed about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're also reluctant to talk about it in front of the patient. Right. So we give them an opportunity to have a sidebar with us before we go into the visit with the patient, while the patient's getting their vitals, (laughs) we usually have a little sidebar with the care partner and often those concerns come out. So I think the important thing is to address it at every visit and address it right up front so that we know that's gonna be a target. If we don't do that, then often we focus on other aspects of the disease. Mm -hmm. Yes, we pay attention to the care partner, but because of time crunch and other issues, we may not be able to deal with it as effectively. 
I think the elephant in the room in these visits is uh, the possibility of going to long-term care. And the reason there's such reticence and people will hide, you know, both on the care partner and certainly the patient side, is that they are worried that this is going to be the thing that puts them in a long-term care facility. And so the other thing I try to get out early is that's not necessarily what we're going to be reaching for as our first option and the outcome that gets, it's an automatic thing. We are, usually, they haven't interested much in the way of behavioral um, opportunities to try to modify the behavior. Let's start there. We can think about pharmacotherapy. We're a long way from long-term uh, Yeah, long-term I like that facilities. sense of optimism. Yeah. And knowing what the care partner's kind of hidden concerns and fears are, which is the notion that they may not be able to take care of this person much longer. They may have to institutionalize them, which is not a desirable outcome. You give them hope. You give them optimism and say, hey, there are interventions. We can try to figure this out. We can give you some tools that will help you. I think that's great. Yeah, and I think if you're not optimistic, and this goes pretty broadly for all therapeutics, if you're not optimistic about how much they might improve a patient's condition, then the patient and their care support is not going to be interested in it either. And so, so let's move on to behavioral uh, techniques. I really like what you said about the fact that you want to keep an agenda for patients. You want to keep it simple but regular. Um, but you don't want to you know, let individuals get bored um, because boredom can make agitation worse. It can be a breeding ground for agitation. Absolutely. At the same time, we don't want to overstimulate a patient. We don't want them, you know, take them to the EBM rave down the street. Um, that could you know, not really go well. So do you find that sometimes people will push a little too but far at home and you know they're, while they're trying to work out some of these things and they need to be you know brought back in a little bit because certainly every patient and family is quite different yeah i do and i think that's an important point to make um, i talk about frustration on mm-hmm. the part of the patient mm-hmm. so i tell the care partners or the family member that yes we want to introduce new activities uh, new kind of interventions that might decrease behavioral issues like agitation But if you're introducing a new activity and you find that it's not working or it's getting the patient more and more frustrated because they can't, let's say you want them to do a complicated puzzle that they cannot do, like a jigsaw puzzle that's got too many pieces and they're getting really frustrated, take them away from that activity. So we want to design things that the patient can do well without frustration, that they can feel good about doing. It may be something very basic and repetitive, like you've done the laundry, now let you know the patient help you fold the towels and right. oh, put that's them great. in the drawer. Yeah, that's great. They're okay with folding towels over and over again as long as they feel that they're helping. Right. So I think the key is to avoid frustration. Yeah, so many so many folks have been so useful, worked yeah. so hard their whole yeah. lives. You can't yeah. just let that go when yeah. you know it has to be a bit of a process there. And I really like the term frustration. And uh, you know, when one way the frustration can run is the care partner's frustrated with the patient because oh now they're getting so much worse and now they never want to get out of bed and they and so just reiterating talking to the patient uh, is something I'll do in front of the care partner and say, yeah, it's, it's really hard you know, when you're so tired. And, they'll, and generally, because we're rapport, they'll say, yes, yes, it is. And that just kind of level sets like, and let's, let's the, uh, that partner see in real time just how much the, uh, the individual patient's life is, uh, is being affected and puts them in a more empathetic state of mind so they can go home and, and do good work again. Sometimes yeah. it's a reset. It's really nice, I yeah. think. And of course, the care partner knows the patient best. 
so they know what their likes and dislikes mm-hmm. sure. are. So we talk about, for example, the benefits of music therapy, right. which can be quite substantial. A number of studies have shown that. But I'm reminded of uh, <laughs> an agitated Alzheimer's patient we admitted to our inpatient unit for difficult to control agitation. And he came to our afternoon music therapy session on our inpatient unit. And that afternoon, we were doing Frank Sinatra. Okay, right. And all the patients who were there were enjoying Frank Sinatra. And he was getting more and more agitated. We found out later from his wife that he likes music, but he hated his whole life Frank Sinatra. So even though he was quite cognitively impaired, it got him more agitated. So again, using the knowledge that the family has can be very, very helpful. I thought the punchline yeah. was going to be it was Tony Bennett, and then you realize you had Tony Bennett. Whoever. Yeah. Could be. Um, so... Any other things you can share in terms of non-pharmacologic therapy when, when you know it's not working? Obviously, they're gearing the you know, same level of agitation or worse, even if they're steady, but it's disturbing the family. I want to try to address it, and it's time to think about pharmacotherapy. Any other things to elaborate on in that yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, uh, as we've pointed out in the other segments, to make sure we've done a thorough kind of evaluation for potential triggers of agitated behavior. One of the things that I often uh, talk about is the, the importance of pain. Where you have a patient who is cognitively impaired, they may be having significant pain, it could be joints or whatever, but they can't tell you that they're in pain. Right. So when I hear from a care partner, for example, that their loved one is usually pretty, you know, uh, mildly behaved or is kind of calm generally, but then when you try to get them bathed or uh-huh. get them into the shower or try to get them into their PJs at night, mm-hmm. that hands-on care, all of a sudden they become very agitated. It could be that that movement is triggering pain or discomfort, so right. let's get them on scheduled analgesia. But I think as far as knowing when things are not working, I take my clues from the care partner. And if they're, you know, contacting me saying, well, gee, doctor, we've tried all these different things and, you know, my husband is still very agitated. In fact, he gets to a point where sometimes I'm worried, God forbid, he might even strike out. He's never hit me before, but I'm actually worried. Then we know that we need to go to another level of intervention and that maybe pharmacotherapy is indicated. Is there a set amount of time you might uh, allow that non-pharmacologic approach to work and then after several weeks you want to go ahead? I mean, you want to give it time. But right. you know, again, a lot of times if the situation becomes rapidly urgent, sure. then oh, that changes we're going to accelerate things. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So speaking of that, let's talk about a case. Uh, we have an 81-year-old woman. She has a history of Alzheimer's dementia for six years. Uh, she's had a gradual decline in cognitive function while in treatment with the nepazil-amimantine. Um, her family says that she's becoming increasingly frustrated, angry over the past months. She's swearing at them while they perform routine, caring tasks. She throws food around her room uh, at least five times per week. And uh, interestingly, three months ago, uh, the patient was, was more withdrawn, was crying more frequently. Uh, so uh, you went ahead and put her on an SSRI, undifferentiated. It was started at this time. Uh, and initially, that helped her symptoms. Um, and to, you know, to continue this scenario, we do our homework. So we want to look at were there other medications that have been introduced or something else that could be bothering her in terms of uh, medication side effects. That's one of the easier things that we can tackle. But th- that review is negative. A laboratory work was performed, TSH, uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, a CBC, all negative. 
Um, for me, I want to know what was that SSRI because maybe it wasn't the best choice of an SSRI. You mentioned that having uh, relaxing SSRIs was a better choice versus an activating SSRI. So not S- all SSRIs are created equal, and certainly with agitation and dementia, you know, there's different different ones have been studied, and the results have been different as well. So I think that's one thing I want to look at. You know, what do you think of his next steps for her? Yeah, you know, I agree with that as hundred uh, percent. So we want to make sure that the right kind of agent with the right kind of calming profile mm-hmm. was chosen. Let's assume for arguments purposes that it was the right kind of profile. But then we also want to make sure that we get to the therapeutic dose. Right. You know, as we often say, you know, this is a at times a frail, cachectic, older adult, vulnerable population. And a lot of times, all of us as clinicians are reluctant to really push the dose mm-hmm. gradually to where it needs to be and then to give it time to work. So I want to make sure that we have the right agent at the right dose for the right amount of time. That'd be very important. And then, of course, we're always thinking, was there something else that could have been a trigger that I didn't think about? You know, we didn't mention checking a urine, but are they going more frequently to the bathroom than they used to? I had a patient just this past week in clinic, an older gentleman that was on an anticholinergic drug that was having difficulty voiding. In fact, he was drinking a lot of liquids, but he was only voiding, according to his wife, like once or twice a day. Oh. And I said, wow, you know... Having the the urine kind of pool in the bladder and the discomfort that that must have caused maybe was the trigger for his agitation. So getting him off of a drug that may have contributed Mm -hmm. and then we added another drug to improve urinary flow eliminated the agitation problem. So we're always thinking about other options. Yeah, I think it's it's very good, and it's it's good to think about other psychiatric issues that could be going on. We talked about some of the physical well, issues that could be going on. That's a great point yeah, too. Because so could right. it be an agitated depression? Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so so, but say we don't find that. You know, now we're thinking about another agent. So she's still on denapazil and mamanti, and it sounds like that's actually done pretty well by her. She's not having side effects. I don't think I necessarily want to you know look to alter those to to make a those. difference. Yeah. You know, here I will look at the SSRI more critically, but you know, and the behavioral intervention is not working. uh, What would be your next choice? Where would you go? I think, especially in the urgent situation, the behavioral interventions are not working. You know, maybe we have an SSRI on board, but we don't have the luxury of time for that to kick in, or even if we've used it for a while, it wasn't quite doing the trick. Then we begin to think about alternatives to, to the medication that the patient's on. Uh, whether it's an antipsychotic medication, there's some utility for the uh, anticonvulsants. Mm-hmm. The data is relatively sparse, as we mentioned. The one that's been most looked at is Divalprox, mm-hmm. as well as uh, oxcarbazepine. Uh, but we might be thinking about a calming antipsychotic. Sure. As we mentioned earlier, the first-generation drugs you know, have just too many liabilities. Those are not the drugs that I want for this patient population. So I'm thinking about the second generation, mm-hmm. the atypicals, or one of the newer third generation drugs. Okay. Uh, and right. like you mentioned with the antidepressants, how do we pick the antipsychotic? Well, I'm not going to pick an antipsychotic that I think is going to activate the patient sure. more. I would want something that's more calming. Right. I don't want to knock them out or sedate them too much, but I do want something that's more calming. So there are a number of things that people try. 
Uh, we could talk about quetiapine. Mm -hmm. Again, the data is not great with quetiapine, but often people will go to that. People will use olanzapine, another kind of calming mm -hmm. uh, drug. Uh, they may use something like aripiprazole. Uh, all of the, even the second generation drugs, have a lot of liabilities. Right. And there's a reason why it's the third generation drugs that are actually now in development for agitation in Alzheimer's dementia. That makes sense to me. Um, but you know, we're still worried, particularly with the black box warning regarding uh, earlier mortality associated with the use of antipsychotic drugs in this population. So I've seen it said, well, you want us to use a low dose and, and they increase very slowly, if at all, and that, that makes sense to me. You also want to use it for a limited time, but we, you know, from there's some research, which isn't, I think, a great body of research, which suggests that if, particularly if you come in with more severe agitation, discontinuing the antipsychotic is associated with a fairly high rate of recurrence. So how do you approach it, you know, in terms of talking to families about what's the chronicity of this, of this drug? Is it just kind of a bridge that you want to, you know, maybe, you know, see if they can get over a, a difficult period? Or is this, do you really push this as, well, this is going to be something you're going to want to use over time? Yeah, that's a, a really important question. And I don't think we have all the data to sure. answer that question. So I've had people ask me, What's the, the natural history of agitation in Alzheimer's dementia? And what I tell them is, is that we don't have sufficient controlled long-term studies over years to fully answer that question. But the limited data we do have, is, as you pointed out, is that it tends to be a chronic problem. Sure. And when you eliminate or even try to cut back on the pharmacotherapeutic intervention, patients become agitated and some of the problems return. So what I tell the family is, is that this may be a long-term treatment, sure. but we're going to try episodically or periodically to see if we can lower the dose or maybe okay. get rid of the intervention just to see if we can achieve a period of stability without the behavior, without the drug. But often when you do that, the behavior returns, returns. and you have to get back on what they're on. Hmm. The good news is the newer agents, particularly the third-generation drugs, are generally better tolerated even with longer-term use and have less side effects and just overall better tolerability. There's a lot of good questions here, and I, I agree. It can, yeah. be a, it can be a major impact. Even, uh, as you mentioned, a small change in agitation can lead to an outsized in, impact <laughs> in terms of care partners and, yeah. and the way they feel so they... <laughs> They're more likely to re-engage. I think that it helps them stick to that behavioral schedule because that's yeah. a foundation, right? We can't we can't stray away from that just because pharmacotherapy has been yeah. initiated. So I think that's a really good point. Is you know if you get a five to ten percent reduction, people notice it. Yeah, and a small change for let's say you and me might be a huge change for the care partner. Right. Um, Absolutely. I'm just reminded of an anecdote. Uh, there have been concerns about the cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine that they're also not dramatic drugs, that the changes might be small, maybe oh, incremental, sure. maybe over time. That I had a patient who, before these drugs were introduced, was getting frustrated every day because he couldn't figure out the remote control sure. on his TV. I'm, I'm and there after too, go ahead. the treatment with, these, with the combination therapy, he was able to figure out the remote control. Wow. Now, that might seem like a small thing to me, but to his wife, that was huge. Oh, right, right. Because it eliminated that frustration right. every day. Yeah. So it's, it's really yeah. kind of treating the patient where they're at and the care exactly. partner yeah. using those reports to, right. to provide good right. care. 
you know, this it's still a little bit complicated. It's, you know, we don't have, these aren't FDA-recommended therapies. Um, you know, you are kind of moving in space. I would recommend getting, you know, a couple of agents in this in that second-generation class, a couple agents in the third-generation class, and then trying to put your, although the third-generation does seem to have some advantages in terms of tolerability, which is critical when you're talking about a long-term therapy in folks who generally have a decline in function. Um, but should we be in primary care be partnering um, with geropsychiatry? Uh, we, you know, which, and many of us don't have a friendly neighborhood uh, <laughs> geropsychiatrist such as yourself, George. That's true. Um, or psychiatry, yeah. geriatrics. What do you yeah. think? No, no. I mean, I, I think you're on the front line, Chuck. And I think you know, primary care providers, healthcare providers, whether people in family medicine, general internal medicine, advanced practice nurses and PAs and so on, a lot of them, like you said, wish they had a consultant sure. available. I'm doing virtual consults to a nursing home in rural northwest Missouri. They don't have a psychiatrist within 100 miles. Wow. That's why we're doing the virtual right, stuff. Right, right. No. So I think it's important for the primary healthcare providers, like you said, to you, know, it's, you don't have to know every drug, but to be comfortable with right. a couple of different drugs, right. maybe the second generation as well as the third generation. And then, of course, we're all hoping that we'll have an FDA-approved drug, which will give us more guidelines and maybe increase our comfort level uh, with knowing what to do pharmacologically. And the, the side effect profiles for these drugs, is, it's not insignificant. Um, do you find that you're able to use a low dose and get efficacy? Because it's, I, I don't have the wealth of experience you have, but I've generally found maybe more so than antidepressants and treating depression, that once you initiate a, a, a lower dose or a moderate dose, I usually get patients to goal in terms of reducing agitation, care partner satisfied. What's been your experience? You know, I agree. I agree. Okay. Now, of course, again, a lot will depend on the choice of agent. Right. So we talk about, in the antipsychotic world, we also talk about low-potency medications versus the high-potency. Sure. Mm-hmm. So low-potency, all that means is, is that you have to give a lot of milligrams. Right, right. But the lot of milligrams really refers to psychiatry. Psychosis, mm-hmm. not to agitation. Right. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of a drug, let's say like quetiapine, which is a low dose, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a second generation drug. You may need to give higher doses right. if the patient's psychotic, but even the low doses might have a calming effect. Similarly with olanzapine and a number of other drugs. Yeah, but I, I like what you said earlier. It's it's start low, go slow, not just start low. Yeah. yeah, and then just uh, and then just peg it and, and expect yeah expect <laughs> right. a, you know right. miracles. Sometimes right. we need to you yeah. know continue to be actively monitoring these patients. So George, thank you for this wonderful discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Things that really might help our audience with their clinic patients every day? Yeah, do my couple. <laughs> so, sure, go so for I mean, it. I think first of all, it's a very important area. I mean, mm-hmm. we want to keep in mind that. Uh, we want to keep these patients at home as long as possible, as independent with their family as long as possible. We'd like to prevent you know, premature, especially long-term care placement. And that after falls, severe behaviors, particularly agitation, in the context of Alzheimer's dementia, are now the leading reason for institutionalization. Right. They're also the leading reason for that conscientious, loving care partner who's trying to do everything possible, yeah. hopefully with our help, finally throwing the towel in and saying, I just can't do it anymore. Right. Okay. So wherever we can do, however we can evaluate and assess and intervene in these scenarios has a huge payoff for both the patient as well as the care partner. And I can't emphasize that enough. And then the importance of just asking about behaviors. 
every patient that we see who has cognitive impairment comes with the family to make sure that we don't miss behaviors like agitation. Yeah, I th- you can't put it any better. And I, th- I, and I think that agitation also opens the door uh, for partners to uh, either neglect or abuse uh, folks with dementia. And that is you know, obviously one of the worst possible outcomes you can imagine. Um, and, and you did a great job elucidating this care ladder, starting with those very important non-pharmacologic approaches, actually starting with just a full assessment of the patient to look at reversible factors um, that can make a big difference. And then, and then using those non-pharmacologic measures followed by good pharmacotherapy. And I think that with a lot of those cases, when you follow that ladder and you're taking care and really paying attention to patients, you take that difficult clinical condition and you solve it. You, you improve it, and uh, that's incredibly satisfactory yeah, for all involved. Absolutely. And the other good news is, is that you know, there are new treatments in the pipeline right. that are looking very promising. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll get ever better tolerated and ever more efficacious treatments yeah. down the road for agitation and Alzheimer's dementia. All right, well, let's hope so. Um, Thank you all very much for attending uh, this series of discussions on agitation and dementia. Hopefully you found it helpful to your practice and very pragmatic. Um, We know everybody's very busy, so it's very appreciated. Uh, Thank you again and be well. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Educational Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Otsuka American Pharmaceutical Incorporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.